0: Maybe they were evil (laughs) in some ways, Uh, but they're not evil in the ways that we think that they are.
1: Kristen Elf is rewriting the history of capitalism in the late Ottoman Empire and its relationship to the broader Mediterranean economy.
0: We need to come to a more global understanding of what capitalism is in the 19th century.
1: Her research focuses on the joint stock companies of mercantile families in the late Ottoman Levant. These families were largely based in Beirut, but they held property in modern-day Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, and Egypt. In this conversation, we'll talk more about these joint stock companies, what they mean for understanding a history of capitalism that pushes against a normative Western European model, and what they mean for understanding the post-Ottoman Middle East. Join us. Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. The title of our conversation in this episode is Local Capitalists in the Late Ottoman Levant. And our guest is Kristen Alf. Kristen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Kristen Elf is a visiting assistant professor of history at University of Virginia. So we're currently colleagues. Uh, and she's specializing in the history of the Middle East and North Africa. The book manuscript. That she's currently working on is entitled Capitalism Around the Mediterranean, Levantine Companies and Landed Property, 1850 to 1925. Uh, And today's conversation is going to revolve around some findings published by Kristen Elf in an article in the journal Comparative Studies in Society and History, which you can find you can find a link to the article uh, on our website. We'll be delving into sort of a case study in what we'll refer to as local capitalism in the Levant from the 19th century onward. We're gonna try to have a broader conversation as well about aspects of the experience of capitalism in the late Ottoman Empire uh, and the modern Middle East and sort of situate them within the global history of business and capitalism and finance and all of these things. So before we delve into the specifics, I want to start off with a bigger question about the way in which capitalism in the Middle East and many parts of the global South is framed. There's a general tendency for forms of capitalism that emerged during the 19th century to sometimes be categorized as deviant from a normative capitalism that emerged in Western Europe or derivative or an import and there may be some dangers in representing things this way. You kind of study actors as full-fledged capitalists. Why do you think it's important to approach the subject in this way?
0: There's two answers to the question of the normative model and the deviation needed for or from it. And the first is that even though this is titled local capitalists, any answer about capitalism needs to, especially in the 19th century, but I would argue anytime, needs to emphasize the globality of capitalism itself. And that means truly showing it as both empirical and analytically global and as an interactive process. And I do that by showing capitalism across the Mediterranean basin. And i, I Know that there is actually some, maybe in an, an imperfect term, Mediterranean capitalism. But this is what I'm using as kind of a placeholder for mm-hmm. a more global study, uh, because I don't. Um, I'm consciously not going talking about Bombay and Argentina, which is also where the companies that I study are, are doing business. Mm-hmm. But we need to come to a more global understanding of what capitalism is in the 19th century. What's imperative is that we take it from the analytical frameworks that many scholars usually use, which is, as you said, this um, normative model in this floating model that can be exported and really thinking about it instead through its interconnections and as a web, uh, another kind of imperfect term, but a web of different interactions and sometimes unequal interactions, sometimes uh, equal interactions, uh, various different ways of, uh, of exchange across the Mediterranean basin. Mm-hmm. The other way that we need to think about capitalism is we need to come to terms with a definition that distinguishes it from an early mercantile, earlier mercantile form. So if we think about capitalism as just exchange, then we get into a dangerous territory by representing it as the the sum total of trade, like world systems theory, or defining capitalism as something that has existed from time immemorial. To what extent does everything become capitalism when when we don't have this model to define or to check it against a Smithian Marxian model, for example.
1: And that's a problem because it actually would kind of suggest also that like all human activity is like somehow inherently capitalist, and Capitalism is just like a natural expression of how People conduct exchange.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is kind of a bar that we need to to understand, right? Or that we need to set. This is my my interpretation. Others have said that capitalism is actually kind of a you know vacant category because the, we see capital accumulation and wage labor and uh, private property in in many different forms from the medieval period. But the way that I tackle this question is to think about what actors are trying to do themselves and. So thinking about what uh, their own ideas are and how they change and and also social relationships. And so um, we can have, for example, shareholding that some people might call serfdom, but it's not, you know, in the late Ottoman Empire. And that and face value looks like a non-capitalist or pre-capitalist, according to Marx, right, uh, 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 social relation. But in my work, I really think about how, what the non-presence of wage labor and these other institutions that contribute to capitalism and also are in indeed capitalist, as I understand it, because there is this distancing of labor from capital. And uh, I find that there is this, and this is a kind of a Weberian vib- way of thinking, modern rationality. And this is something that Michael Louvi talks about: um, the the blending of Smith, Marx, and Weber, and it's really thinking that, or there was a moment in time, and I say that it's, it happens around the 19th century, late 19th century, especially after or during World War One, where we have labor increasingly distanced from capital. Um, the companies is increasingly distance from the, their members, the component members, and land is also uh, a distance from capital. And so we have this separation. This happens not only um, on the ground in material form, but also kind of ideologically in what the actors themselves are thinking is happening.
1: And a lot of what you said is consistent with sort of a rethinking of the history of capitalism, in the global south, but for the Middle East and the Islamic world in particular, there is sort of a history of representation or ways of talking about difference in economic system and organization of society that needs to be like addressed or confronted in some way that there's been a long history of writing that somehow economic systems that emerged in the Islamic world are, again, if not deviant, different uh, from what arose in Western Europe and there, there are aspects that are not commensurate with what we think of in conventional terms as capitalism.
0: I mean, I think that both has happened, right? There's a, a historiography that says, hey, look at the 18th century, look at the 17th century. The, we have these things that look like Western Europe, like private property. Uh, look at us, like we were we were kind of the same, right? And I think that's flawed in in ways because it's not understanding kind of the the difference, or the the originality of what was going on in, in in its own social and economic and political history under the Ottoman Empire, giving it kind of its own history, instead of saying that look, the peasants they they traded usufruct rights as private property, so. That you know, we had a precursor to private property. Don't worry, we didn't necessarily import this. And, and that is fine, and it really does make the, the people who have written about, like Ken Kuno and Bashar Domani, have really made inroads into thinking about capitalism in, a lo- in local ways. And um, at the same time, then we lose a little bit of kind of what the, the difference is, like I said, and also the, the interactions across the Mediterranean in the 19th century. In, in the period that I study, we have also then the other side that says that there is no capitalism in the Middle East uh, before World War One or before actually the British brought it right. And this we see that in the Palestinian um, historiography about British law and private property. We see this with Timur Quran and David Landis and people who write about the the great divergence. And we see new institutional systems theory in this literature says, I mean, even Roger Owen, to to be fair, like says, calls this pre-capitalism. He wants to nuance it more than Timur Karan does, but he calls this as a pre-capitalist or non-capitalist uh, Gershon Shafir. A lot of scholars have, have done that because they're operating in this more kind of strict Marxist uh, framework. And when they do that, they are, as you're question uh, implies talking about the middle east as a deviation from this normative european model which was not even a model in europe this is a, an abstraction that didn't exist anywhere and so if the middle east is a deviation then europe is too right and so that there is a, something to be said about uh having historians take another look at at some of these institutions and really think about what the operation in the the mechanics were in capital accumulation, in specific social relations in the countryside uh, at this time.
1: And so to circle back to something you said at the beginning of our conversation, we framed it as local capitalism. But really what it is, is we're looking at a global phenomenon that that is capitalism from the center of a place that is often cast as peripheral, putting Levantine capitalists uh, and their businesses at the center of the discussion. So let's talk more concretely about uh, your work on the subject. Uh, you studied these joint stock companies of, I guess, predominantly Arabic speaking families in the Levant uh, and the relationships that they built with uh, European partners. I think it would be good for our listeners to, of course, talk about the structure of these companies a little bit, what they were up to, but also sort of highlight just how uh, central these business ventures were in some cases to sort of the making of modern society and politics uh, in, the, in the region.
0: First of all, who are these companies? They were not just Arabic-speaking. If they were just Arabic-speaking, then my dissertation would have been fun, uh, done much quicker and this article would have been also quicker. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, they they are Arabic-speaking. They consider themselves Arabs, Ottomans, Francophone, uh, a number of different things, capitalists, company members, Beirutis, and uh, Greek Orthodox Christians. Uh, they were also multilingual. They wrote in Greek, they wrote in Turkish, in English, in Italian, and French. Uh, they also wrote French in Arabic script, which was uh, fun, not fun. <laughs> <laughs> and these companies, they, they migrated to Beirut from parts of northern Syria, or it was today northern Syria. They were tax farmers. The Sarsok family, which is uh, the kind of main kind of thread uh, of my uh, work, they uh, migrated before the Civil War of 1860. And then they also, then they were housing and also taking care of a lot of other um, Maronites and Greek Orthodox Christians uh, after 1860. And uh, they housed them in their houses, and they became very, very good friends. Mm -hmm. They invested in production of silk. They owned many silk factories. They were very engaged in production uh, of silk, the growing, the production, the export of silk, until silk started to become undersold by um, Japanese and, and Chinese silk. And then they decided to invest in land. and they invested in land outside of uh, alexandria outside of haifa uh, outside of mersin adana outside of these big bigger ports or what become bigger ports in part because mm-hmm. of this and this is goes more to your question about the making of the modern world Jens hansen has Talked about this in 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 uh, in length about these co- very companies or family companies as being so enmeshed in politics that they actually do get the Ottoman center to change the administrative capital to Beirut throughout the late 19th century they become more and more involved in ottoman politics local politics but also then in parliament they are helping to write laws rewrite laws and they they make petitions to have their business activities more autonomous and more autonomously controlled in the lead up to world war 1 we can debate what the what modern middle east really means but there is this very big shift during World War One, where transportation becomes more important, where railroads are being built, where roads are being built, where property is being consolidated, and it's really phenomenal, in my opinion, <laughs> that there was in the lands that these companies held shares on mm-hmm. they were first purchased as shares in the agricultural product yeah. where the peasants owned usufruct uh, rights other people owned different rights on these lands and after world war one they created multi-village estates that were owned by a single owner and actually managed by australian officers and so this very big change between the mid 19th century and the early 20th century is really does take part in large part because of what these companies are doing and how they are reacting or, or and interacting with the global market and also interacting with the peasants and widows in their families and in all of these different micro kind of social interactions as well. And in this Helps to create, or at least contributes to create this different fabric, this different modern world that the British actually inherit. Uh, inherit, and so what we often then attribute to British uh, or colonial intrigue, or colonial uh, laws, or colonial imposition is actually realized during World War One before the the British are formally creating, or the British and the French are formally creating m- mandates in the region.
1: We'll, we'll talk more about that in just a second, how the companies and the financial relationships that emerge around them play a pivotal role in the the period of European colonialism after the First World War and the fall of the Ottoman Empire. So let's talk more about the origins of uh, or the making of these joint stock companies and those relationships.
0: So the companies themselves uh, grew up in Beirut and they started about eighteen uh, the 1830s, um, again, with the silk trade. And the founders of these companies were uh, the male members, uh, the founding male members of the, the families themselves, um, or the, the patriarchs of the families themselves. Uh, this was the, the Sarasoc family, Bustros, Twaini, Farah, uh, Debas, tabats and these families intermarried and they also kind of had cousin companies that were married only through one one line one marriage and so we have this interconnect these interconnected families that uh, in the very beginning at least in the 19th century uh, or the mid 19th century operated because they were in close Communion or close proximity with one another uh, in the city of Beirut, and so the spatiality of their where they lived, where their household were located, uh, and the expansion of the household was very important. And then these companies in the mid nineteenth century, when silk was kind of waning, they start to invest in shares in the agricultural surplus in Palestine, in Marcin They start growing cotton uh, cotton in Marcin Adana, or outside of Marcin Adana and in Alexandria. They try to grow cotton in parts of Palestine, and they actually try to um, market this as uh, better than Egyptian cotton, which uh, obviously uh, it was not. (laughs) And they also start mining. They mine different... Uh, minerals like beets and men, uh copper, uh, tin. They start uh, also trading uh, or, or exporting a lot of materials um, and food like wheat, uh, wheat products, cotton products. And through this uh, this trade, they vertically integrate their businesses throughout the 19th century to be not only more and more controlling the agricultural production of these um, commodities or these raw materials, but also in the manufacturing realm in Lancaster and in Ma- Manchester and Hull. And they also then participate in the transportation and they, they buy up shares in the Cadival Mail, uh, Steamship Company, this kind of thing. So their, their intention is to uh, vertically integrate their businesses in ways that they have, they, they profit from all stages of production and manufacture, uh, transportation and manufacture across the Mediterranean basin and then beyond it.
1: And what is the relationship to other mercantile actors in the Mediterranean?
0: I mean, it depends on what time, of, what period we're talking about. So in the mid-19th century or even the early 19th century, they are part of more of a Greek orthodox Flavored company exchange. And these companies are the first that are, at least from what I can gather, they are making the most uh, intensive or the most. Um, risky futures trading because they are connected socially and culturally with um, groups that had moved from the Ottoman Empire to places in Paris for example. Mm -hmm. And then after that they grow from this one lineage of uh, one line of Greek Orthodox family uh, companies trading together to a, uh, a broader scope of investments. And so they invest in stock markets, they invest in debt in Argentina, like I said, and, and also Bombay and uh, also um, Russia. And they invest in different banks and they put their money in different banks and they also create relationships. With the Russian Bank uh, Bank of Trade, with the um with Rothschild Bank, for example, um, and they buy up a majority shares in a lot of these manufacturing companies in in Britain. And the, it's very fascinating because um the actual the and this is something i'm I'm thinking about more and more. Scholars like Patti Ireland do talk about this Dresa company in Britain as being unincorporated, even if it was formally incorporated in courtrooms. The Dresa company was thought of as a collection of they's. And so each individual person, it was made up of collection of individuals. Whereas after World War One, it started to become more like an object, uh, an it and been referred to as an it. And I see this uh, same kind of tendency in the Ottoman context or the the M- Middle East context across uh, over World War One. And I'm starting to think that there was more to it than the like than coincidence, right? Well, I mean, obvious that it's almost obvious. But, Often, scholars don't talk to each other, and so we just kind of have this um, this vague sense that things might have been the same. But these companies are operating in Britain, and they're in courtrooms, uh, the same courtrooms that Patty Adolin talks about, pushing for a certain conception of the company. And they want the judges to treat their company as Ottoman companies that are different from British companies. And they're actually creating precedent in British courts for certain practices that are not necessarily widespread in Britain. And so my understanding, and this is kind of a tentative understanding, is that there is uh, this exchange that happens in British courtrooms and also in Ottoman courtrooms that um, that does define, in some ways, the the concept of the, the joint stock company. It makes it legible for people uh, in the Ottoman Empire and in, in Britain, for example. In a more trans-regional scope, they're writing daily letters to uh, different managers in, in these agricultural realms, in these very fertile areas of, uh, outside of Haifa, outside of Alexandria and Marcin Adena. And they create what they call themselves agricultural companies. And so these are kind of different. They're kind of out, offshoots from the family joint stock company, although there's really great overlap between them. The companies are designed to interact with the manager and to dictate what is being planted. And this happens over uh, a period of time and there's not much mechanization. I think they are operating in different ways, which is I think very fascinating uh, between the between Egypt and the Levant. And they're doing so because of the history of Egypt, er, er, land in Egypt is obviously slightly different than the Levant. The Egypt has more plentiful labor Levant has scarcity of labor. And so sharecropping was instructing the managers to preserve, and preserve is maybe the wrong word, to modify sharecropping arrangements that to make it look to have to maximize capital accumulation in a labor-scarce area. And they're asking um, their managers in Egypt to create more of a wage-labor uh, system because that would maximize capital accumulation there. And so we see these this active choice of which models to employ. And then later on, they are in the real estate business and they, in the early 20th century, in 1902, the Jewish National Fund, or actually the JCA and and other uh, Zionist purchasing agents, companies, come and they uh, offer 40 times the value of this land. And so it's only kind of natural that these companies would be uh, okay with letting go of this land for 40 times the the market value. And they do that in interchange, in exchange with these nascent real estate companies that are popping up in Beirut to deal with this more intensive or more intense demand for agricultural real estate in the part of foreign companies, be it Zionist or uh, the German Templars, Or just French businessmen, American businessmen, they came over and they thought that uh, they could grow cotton in Palestine because it was the same latitude line as Savannah. And we have a lot of interest during this period, obviously, to fit the to fill the need. There is uh, these relationships with the real estate companies uh, and these other kind of outcropping of tangential companies that are offshoots of this joint stock company. uh, And again, overlapping with it that uh, deal just with real estate ventures. In sal- sales.
1: We're talking to Kristen Elf about joint stock companies that emerged in the Ottoman Levant during the late 19th century uh, in a discussion of local capitalism in the late Ottoman Empire. We're going to take a quick music break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Dr. Kristen Elf, talking about her work on local capitalists in the late Ottoman Levant. Early on in our conversation, Kristen, you said that the history of colonialism in the Middle East, to some extent, has kind of been written backwards in a way. Uh, There was an idea that capitalist industry sort of came with the British, let's say, or with the British and the French, And you were pointing to the ways in which um, these new powers that inherited the lands of the Ottoman Empire also inherited economic structures that were created by some of the local actors you've looked at during uh, the 19th century period. So what then really is the relationship between colonialism and this brand of capitalism you study in the Middle East?
0: There are two ways uh, of thinking about land in particular, and this is private property. And the first is that The 1858 Land Code changed everything, even if it wasn't its its intention, and made private property indirectly. And the other is that the British came, um, and at least in the, in um, I'm talking about Palestine in particular now, the British came and, and enacted laws that made private property possible. Implicit in many of the arguments about 1858, the Ottoman land code, is that there was some mimicry on the part of the Ottomans to mimic Western institutions of private property. And my book project, not the article so much, traces the complexity of a transition from for lack of a better word the bundle of rights on uh, agricultural land entailed in the mid 19th century and what it became in the in the 20th century there is another layer to this story the local companies have a lot to do with the shape of property, what private property looked like at the time, and not just the local companies, but the peasants themselves who uh, negotiated with the companies as to what their role would be, negotiated with the state, for example. Um, And so we have these layers of different actors. Uh, We have peasants, we have the companies, the Ottoman state, and also kind of more global companies, multinational companies and banks that are uh, all contributing to uh, the shift in what, uh, in from private or from uh, shareholding, sharecropping to what looks like private property. Although I must, I have to note here that what comes about in the 19th century or 20th century is incomplete, as all private property is in somewhat incomplete, but that there is obviously uh, an incompleteness to this private property. There are still many rights holders that had legitimate claims, uh, legal claims to rights. After World War I, that were kind of left out of the story when many of these agricultural lands were sold subsequently to uh, the Jewish National Fund or to the JCA, uh, to American Zion, and to the German Templars, and to French companies wanting, uh, and German companies wanting um, cotton, for example. And there's another aspect to this particular story, and this is why I find it most fascinating myself, is that we have Jewish settlers in Palestine and also Zionist companies purchasing land. And there's another uh, narrative that does attribute many of the changes in agriculture and the legal changes, the social and economic changes in the region to Jewish immigration, to uh, Jewish companies, to Zionist companies. And there's also a third iteration of this narrative that makes this purchasing of land the beginnings of an Israeli state or a nascent Israeli state. And so these companies that sold land to the Zionist purchasing agents, they are looked upon by many in Palestine today as traders to uh, Arab Nationalist Project, to collaborators with a uh, Jewish, nascent Jewish state. They are thought of in some cases as creating Israel or making Israel through their larger land grants. And these narratives take for granted or at least anachronistically talk about conflict from a period where we can't necessarily See conflict. And this is a problematic in Palestine studies in general, where we are looking for roots of the conflict constantly. So we have this narrative of Zionists versus Arab peasants, or Zionists and Arab companies from Beirut versus Arab peasants. And we see that through the, this binary, and through a lens of uh, separation and conflict. And so what my work tries to do, in, ter- in in addition to trying to understand capitalism, is to take Palestine out of this, this binary relationship, out of this binary framework, and to put it in, in, in conversation with analyses of capitalism or of studies of capitalism, and to show how this area that's now the Jezreel Valley was, or Marj Namr, was very integral to capitalism itself as it emerged or as it was a process in this period. And so I want to uh, stress, and I, I think I, I stress, maybe overstress in my own work that the Arab companies, maybe they were Evil (laughs) in some ways, Uh, but they're not evil in the ways that we think that they are, right? They're
1: evil in capitalist ways.
0: (laughs) I mean, I I joke that they're evil, but they were opportunistic, right? And so, depending on how you feel about capitalism, (laughs) they were being very good capitalists, or regardless of how you feel about capitalism, they were being very good capitalists. And what they were, how they were being very good capitalists is that they were buying low and selling high. (laughs) At Stanford where um, I taught classes on capitalism, I tell my students that these companies are no different from people in Palo Alto. People in Palo Alto families bought their houses for you know two hundred thousand dollars in the eighties, and then now they're selling them for six million dollars. And uh, this is something that was not necessarily unheard of uh, in the ni- or in the early twentieth century either. And so to criticize these companies for not having the foresight that Israel might happen, for example, I mean in some narratives, like I said, there's hate poetry written about them. Companies themselves are very Uh, Attentive To this narrative And their Wikipedia page They do say uh, That they had to sell this land It was imperative Because they were so in debt Well, I've seen their company records And they were not in debt But they were good capitalists And so this is a a capitalist story um, That involves the transformation Of landed property That involves the vertical integration Of business And the dispossession of peasants to some extent of their usufruct rights in the same way that was happening in egypt and in mersin edina this is i see this as a, a contiguous field and it might have been slightly different because of the commodities being produced and because of geography geography because of environment and ecology because of ports but it did look very similar, and the companies were trying to do very similar things in these different places. If we look at Palestine in this field, this transregional field of the Levant, this further transregional field of the Levant in Egypt, and then the broader global field or global-ish field of the Eastern Mediterranean and the Mediterranean basin, which extends to Western Europe. Then we see a, a slightly different narrative about Palestine that emerges in this period. That yes, um, does result in the purchase of land by foreign companies and the emergence of private property, but not because of the uh, intention of these Europeans to purchase this as private property. And again, we have this is oversimplification because we do have different. Companies in different needs, right? Uh, Zionist companies had different needs than the Baumwoll Gesellschaft, for example, that was operating in, uh, in Um They were content on not in keeping sharecropping going because they wanted to have labor remain on the land, for example. And the Zionists and the German Templars did not necessarily want usufruct uh, rights to be preserved because they wanted to work the land themselves, and so this this is the difference, right? But uh, in the end, these were this is uh, the differences that come, uh, the geographical and the institutional differences that come with capitalism in general. And to see this is in a broader scope is something that I think needs to be done more often, which really. Doesn't put the conflict at center stage.
1: So there's a rather novel narrative of the remaking of the Levant in geopolitical terms uh, that emerges from a study of these companies, which, as you you said, sort of had this con- belt of continuity of land ownership and operations from Mersin in modern day Turkey all the way down to Alexandria in Egypt, of course with the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, all these different regions have a distinctive political history, Palestine having its very different political history from Lebanon and Syria and Turkey and Egypt, and that being reflected in sort of the fate of the operations that these families owned and operated during that period.
0: If one moves out of the uh, Palestinian exceptionalism box and puts it in conversation with Egypt in Mersin Adana, in and other parts of the Levant, one can see that Palestine is just as different from parts of Syria as Egypt is just as different from parts of Syria. And it has, because of its political history, because of its um, what happens during World War One and his, its political history following and in, in from 1881 um, and even earlier with the German Templars and in Egypt um, it is the uh, monopoly system uh, imposed by Mehmed Ali that in, in various other in irrigation systems and the like I said the surplus of labor and these things make Egypt look slightly different from other regions even though it's growing cotton just like Mercenedna and is or outside of that, um, of course, it's a different it's short staple versus long staple, and in, in in difference of of cotton as a commodity, and that's also uh, another um, another reason why we need to look at these areas as uh, different and understand the difference, but also realize that the the way that capitalism works, the reason why it it works, or our frames of analysis can't capture this difference uh, in a meaningful way, and so what I propose is that we try to think about capitalism by capturing this difference and understanding each place's role in the greater system, uh, for lack of a better word, not a world system, but necessi- but the the more macro systems as they. Unfold in the 19th century, where uh, we have the steamship, we have more globalization, and how they played a part in shaping what that globalization looked like. And also, what part they played in unequal distributions of power, right? Power doesn't just, is not just an absolute. We cannot forget that there is inequality that not all regions or not all people from all regions are are equal in this system, but that inequality does not come from nowhere. It comes from the Interaction between these people. And so to make that as constructed as well within the system and also reconstruction and maintained throughout this web of circulation and mobility is important to recognize and not take for granted.
1: Well, there's lots more we could talk about but I think we'll leave it at that for today. Kristen Alf, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me about your research.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: We look forward to the book manuscript in progress on the subject of Levantine companies and landed property during the late 19th century in the late Ottoman uh, Levant. Uh, we want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Remind them to check out our website, OttomanHistoryPodcast.com, where we have a short bibliography including the works of Kristen Elf, as well as other scholars mentioned and or relevant to today's discussion. That's all for this episode. Join us next time.